Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Monday, October 29th, 2018, and this is show number 703. Well, we got our son Kyle married off this weekend to Nikki, and it was such a blast. We had such a good time. You know, it's really fun when the families get along in a wedding. You know, both sides are really happy and like each other. That's really fun. And, you know, I kind of expected that that would be a fun part about it, but I didn't realize how much funner friends would be. Steve and I danced from around 7 p.m. until midnight, almost nonstop. I uh, I have ice on my right knee as a result because... <laughs> I'm 60. Uh, but I got to tell you, I don't regret it a bit. I wasn't able to go on a, uh, a big exercise today. I think it'll be fine by tomorrow. Anyway, I do appreciate you all being patient enough to wait until Monday night for us to do the show. Um, I do also have to say, I've been referring to our house as the house of horrors. Since I talked to you last, I have moved back out of my temporary studio and back into my temporary studio, which then we decided should become my real studio. Steve broke up uh, Kyle's old childhood desk that was in this room that I was using. And uh, then he put my they put my real desk in here and I'm now in my official new studio. It um, it has some real big advantages having my own room where I can work late at night if I want to. And Steve can sleep because I used to do it in our bedroom. And uh, but it does have one downside. I'm right above the garage. So if Steve forgets and opens the garage door when I'm recording, you're going to hear it. We're working on a couple of different uh, home automation ideas, maybe a light that I can trigger from here when I'm recording. Steve says, why not just put a smart switch on the garage door and just <laughs> disable it? So, uh, you know, you never know what we're going to do with this. It could be fun. But um, I'm kind of excited to have my own little place here. And I don't know why we didn't think about it earlier. Well, Steve, and I hope to see you all in the chat room tomorrow for the Apple announcement. Head on over to podfeet.com slash chat at 7 a.m. Pacific time so we can all get giddy with excitement together. I can't wait to see what they've done in the iPad line personally, and I'm sure it's going to be a lot of fun. We'll be able to talk about what's boring, what's stupid, what's awesome. It's always a lot of fun. So podfeet.com slash chat, 7 a.m. Pacific time, whatever time it is in your time zone. Well, I get a lot of PR emails trying to get me to interview people. I have never responded to one until now. I was asked, do you want to interview a former NASA space shuttle engineer who's turned into a science fiction author? His name is Darren Beyer. What do you think? Oh my gosh, how could I possibly refuse? I had super high hopes, but it was better than I expected. In Chit Chat Across the Pond Light, I did have the great pleasure of interviewing Darren about his amazing adventures. Darren's stories were fascinating as he described being one of the last people tramping around in the cargo bay of the shuttle before the astronauts got into it to go into space. I got to tell you, that is a crazy dream job. Anyway, then we shifted gears into talking about his science fiction books. He's got two books out in what he calls the Angazi series. Book one has been out for a while. It's called uh, Casimir Bridge. And book two was just released called The Pathogen Protocol or just Pathogen Protocol, I guess. Anyway, after I got off the air with Darren, we had had so much fun. I said, you know, we're like friends now. You have to send me all your information so we can talk anytime. I love talking to him, and I think you'll enjoy the conversation as much as we did. Well, because we're all nerds around here, a conversation about NASA engineering and science fiction is considered a light episode. So check it out in Chit Chat Across the Pond Light or in the full Chit Chat Across the Pond feed in your podcatcher of choice. As always, you can listen directly at podfeet.com. Back in June, I told you about an awesome app for iOS called Hash Photos. I like to think of Hash Photos as kind of a better front-end GUI to your Apple Photos library. My blog post was pretty in-depth, 
But it turns out there's a ton more cool stuff that it could do than I even realized at the time. I discovered these new features because I decided to teach hash photos for the Screencast Online subscribers. I tell you, you know that, but it's no better way to learn a tool than to have to teach it. After creating the tutorial, I actually moved hash photos to the home screen on my iOS devices and moved Apple photos to the second screen. That is how much I love this tool. I wanted to make sure I didn't instinctively open regular photos, but went to uh, hash photos instead. I'm super proud of the tutorial I created, and I hope you'll consider doing the seven-day free trial of Screencast Online so you can watch it. I put a teaser video over in um, in the uh, blog post so you guys can watch the teaser video, but it is it is such a phenomenal app. I mean, let me just give you one little teeny thing that I love that it does. I took a screenshot with my my Apple Watch today, and I needed to embed it in a blog post, and I needed it now. Well, I knew it would already be on my phone, but how long was it going to take to go up to the internet and come back down into Apple Photos? doesn't matter. Open up Hash Photos. There's a button that says Send to Mac or PC. Send it over to my Mac. Boom. Done. Didn't have to wait for it to go all the way up to the internet and come back down. So instead of, you know, texting it to yourself or whatever, it's it's just a, a much better way to do it. Anyway, I am in love with Hash Photos and it comes through in my tutorial. Uh, it's almost an hour long because I just couldn't fit it all in. In fact, when I got completely finished, don't tell Don, I forgot to mention that you can edit videos with it too. Oops. Well, shh. Be very, very quiet. Do not tell him. Well, we've got a surprisingly brief recording from George from Tulsa. That's not a bad thing, and I'm not complaining about the long ones, but let's have a listen. I recently reconfigured my home computer desk, which enabled me to replace a 27-inch WQHD monitor with a 49-inch 4K TCL Roku Smart TV purchased for $320 at the nearby Best Buy. Running the 4K TV at 1920 by 1080, I'm able to scale both Mac and Linux UI to compensate for my increasing visual challenges. Don't have vision issues? The native 4K resolution would enable putting a lot of spreadsheets or GarageBand tracks on screen at one time. I'd been listening to Leo Laporte and his home theater geek, Scott Wilkinson, discussing 4K TVs on the Tech Guy podcast and they both speak favorably of TCL sets. My now three-week experience verifies their accolades. The image is better than good. $320? What's holding anyone back? Over the last several weeks, Scott has been fielding listener questions about bias lighting, a fancy way of referring to lights placed behind TVs to create an aura around the set to reduce the contrast differential of a bright set in a dim room. It's supposed to ease eye strain. I decided to test it out by putting a couple of LED lamps behind my new TCL and was pleased with the effect. The lamps weren't shaped right to stay there. The Goog showed that bias lighting kits are strips of LEDs on adhesive tape stuck to the back of a TV, and aimed at a wall. Some plug into the powered USB port on many new TVs and turn on and off when the set does. More elaborate kits plug into AC power and have dimming remotes that can also, like the Philips Hue system, set color palettes. I've read the most expensive ones will adjust the color palette to what's on screen. 
Even after my test with LED lamps, I wasn't sure I wanted to spend money on what might turn out to be a gimmick. Best Buy sells a variety of bias lighting kits. The one with dimming and color control costs $60, a big percent of my $320 TV. Amazon has a wide variety, but there's that problem on Amazon of third-party sellers offering junk and buying favorable reviews. Which led me, pun acknowledged, to Home Depot seeking LED lights that would work behind the TV, and for less than $60. Nope. And what was there was more expensive than Best Buy's bespoken offerings. On my dejected path toward Home Depot's parking lot, I noticed the Christmas lighting display. A rope of white LED lights for $7? Experimenting is fun, right? I splurged on a 14-foot string for $12. Knowing if the LEDs didn't work out behind the TV, it's about time to string them on the holly bushes to guide St. Nick to my stocking. What I learned from my Christmas light test is that bias lighting really is a good idea. And that while the Christmas lights work, they'll work best as Christmas lights. I'm going to upgrade either to the Best Buy with remote or possibly some alternative from Amazon. You'll find some pics from my home workstation in the show notes. They give at least a hint how bias lighting can enhance both your computing and your TV viewing. Well, I got I think the best way to describe what he's talking about is to read what uh, April said over in our Slack at podfeed.com slash Slack. She said, after I posted the blog post that uh, George wrote, I always enjoy listening to these guest posts, but this one I'm glad to have read. The images in this post tell a pretty good story. The colors of the room lights on and the room lights off with bias lighting are very close. I'm amazed that this effect was created just from the makeshift strand of Christmas lights behind the TV. This is fascinating stuff. And I completely agree. You got to go see George's picture to really get what he's talking about. I had never heard of this bias lighting thing, and it looks pretty cool. I think we should do it, but I haven't convinced Steve to do it yet. We'll see. Last week on the podcast, I played Russ Sherman's dumb question asking us, what makes a good Apple Watch activity goal? We got some terrific answers, and I think they add a lot to this conversation. I want to start out with Rick Abraham, who answered on the blog post with this advice. Once per week, my Series 4 watch prompts me with a new, usually higher, daily activity goal based on my past week's performance, currently 560 for me. I typically leave my goal the same as I don't have the time required it would take to achieve an increased activity goal. If I did have the time, I would probably go with the recommendation made on the watch each week until the goal again became undoable for me time-wise. It might also be a good idea to consult a doctor and get an expert's opinion on the proper activity goal based on your particular situation. Another factor for me is I still use the Lose It app to track calories consumed. If I have a few bad eating days where I consume way more than my daily calorie average, I will increase my activity to offset those consumed calories. Knowledge is power. So I guess I'm saying for me, it is a moving target rather than a static number etched in stone week to week. Well, thanks, Rick. That's pretty much how I approached it. But the number kept going up and I do have the time. 
It was killing me, so I stopped responding to its request to up my number, and it eventually quit nagging me, which I thought was interesting. I think the best part of your advice is to consult a doctor. It sounds stupid, but I never even thought about that. That's a really good idea. When you mentioned lose it, using Lose It to track calories and balance that with exercise, it reminded me of a, uh, a story from Stephen Getz. One time he said, uh, he wrote to me, he said, the Apple Watch let me have a cookie. Well, what he meant was that he did an extra walk around the block and the watch told him he had now earned the right amount of extra calorie burned to be able to fit a cookie into his diet. I like the way he said it, though. All right, moving on. Norbert Frost has said over in Facebook, my two cents is that good activity goals are personal to the individual. I think that you have to use your stated activity goal with other data like weight, medical conditions, and lifestyle. If you're doubling your active goal but still gaining weight, then it's time to step it up. However, if you hit your goal three of seven days but getting healthier, then that's okay. If you let the Apple Watch take over, it will continue to increase your goal if it sees you're hitting your numbers consistently. The most important thing is to have a balanced life with your goal. It's not about the actual number. Norbert, man, you make some really great points here, especially about it being an individual goal. You got to kind of think of it as like your personal record. You don't just set your PR goal based on somebody else. It's just that. It's personal. The other thing I was I was thinking about, uh, now you said it's time to step it up if you're still gaining weight. I would also add something I learned from a guy who had lost about 100 pounds. Uh, I met him at a conference at the, uh, at the Command D conference, and I was kind of bragging about Bart and all the weight he'd lost. And he said, yeah, I lost 100 pounds. And uh, anyway, he said that the trainer he worked with had the best advice ever. He said, you can't outrun your fork. Think about that. Anyway, Dave Brennett gave his practical advice over on our Facebook group at podfeet.com slash Facebook. He said, good activity goals are only seen in hindsight. If they can't be stuck to, then they are not good. And small incremental changes are better than reaching for the moon. Uh, Dave, man, you are right on here. Combining that with what Norbert said, maybe the way to do it is get a baseline that is your personal normal. Wear the watch for a couple of weeks. Watch how it measures what you're doing without even trying. Then think about the goals that would be practical for you. Can you 10% more next week? Sure you can. Try that for a few weeks. And when it becomes too easy, then think about the next 10%. You talk about not reaching for the moon. That, That just really resonates with me. I knew someone who would get a gym membership and she would go to the to go to the gym you know, 10 straight days. I'm going every day. I'm doing an hour day and do all this. And she would set her goals so hard to reach that way that she would always give up. And uh, I don't know that she ever even got back to it, but this happened over and over again. Well, Rick Cartwright wrote in our Slack over at podv.com slash Slack. I don't have a good answer, but I'll ramble for a couple of minutes. (laughs) I love that. Anyway, he said, I think this is very individual. Each person is likely motivated by something different. A friend of mine has to set his move goal high and is motivated when the app increased it every week. That gets him motivated. If he falls short, it motivates him for the next week. I'm personally more motivated by this streak. No, I'm not streaking. How long I can close my rings, that kind of streak. He says, I'm at 883 days. That keeps me very motivated. I don't up my move goal. My move average is over 1,000 calories, but I really don't get motivated by that number. It's the streak that motivates me, my OCD, I guess. A long way of saying, know what makes you work hard and set your goal accordingly. I hope that makes sense and is helpful. Well, Rick, you're right on. 
I've noticed that when I have a good streak going, I do not allow a lazy day. It is not going to happen. Luckily, I haven't had a streak going in about six months. So while most days I rock my goals, an odd day off here and there is in the end of the world. But if I've got a streak going, man, I stay on it. It's like I got to start a new streak. I got to say, though, 883 day streak, that is nuts. I don't care what your goal is. Now, I do know people that the idea of the watch nagging them is the last thing that would motivate them. And yet that little nag is it's golden to me. In fact, I wish it would nag me more. Another motivational idea might be the little badges that Pat Dingler loves so much. Even though they're virtual, she'll do everything in the world to get them. Other people might think that's silly and not even consider them motivational. Another thing you could look at is the Apple Watch supports competitions between people, and that can be another way to get motivated. Maybe you don't get motivated by competitions, but you like the badges or you like these other ideas Rick has. I think all of these different ideas are exactly what Rick was saying. What motivates you? That's what you want to drive for. I love this topic. Can you tell? And I hope everyone learned an idea that might help them find the right activity goal for them and that'll help them get healthier. I'd like to talk more, but I have to get 61 workouts done in the month of October to get that little badge. I am really excited to welcome Clan Rollins to our list of patrons of the Podfeet podcast. It's like being a patron of the arts. Well, it's a podcast and it's about tech, not art. So like totally the same, right? Anyway, Clan apparently went to podfeet.com slash Patreon and he signed up to contribute a dollar amount a week to help us continue to produce the shows. He felt there was enough value in the knowledge he gains and the entertainment value of the shows we produce here. It's that value for value thing that really makes Patreon a great way to contribute to the show. If you got some spare money, just, you know, taking up room in your bank account, please consider becoming a patron and show your support like Clan and all the other fine patrons. This week, Steve and I ran into a very curious problem with our internal network at our house. Before I jump into what went wrong, I got to give you the layout of our current network. We have Frontier Fios, used to be owned by Verizon, and we're paying for symmetric 75 megabits per second upload and download. We've had fantastic service for years with only minor interruptions in service. If you've been following along for a long time, you may remember back in 2013 when Bart taught all of us how to essentially bypass ISP-supplied Fios routers and instead use a router of our own choosing. I put a link of that in the show notes to the full tutorial, but the main idea is you configure the Fios router as a NAT router with a DMZ address on the LAN side. Then your real router is configured with its WAN side address to that DMZ address from the Fios router. From here, your real router gets to dish out DHCP addresses and do management of the network. Essentially, the Fios router becomes simply a pass-through device. And yes, I did try to see how many acronyms I could get in three sentences. Anyway, you don't need to remember all that. But back when he taught us, I had an airport extreme. In February of 2017, I added a Netgear R8500 tri-band router to the mix. Bart had explained the dangers of having janky IoT devices on our network, so I created two internal networks, one with the airport extreme for the IoT devices of suspicious origin and any Windows machines that wandered into our house, and then the Netgear for our Macs and any HomeKit-enabled IoT devices. And of course, this separated network design was all documented in a blog post as well. Well, because I'm a genius, a year and a half later, it occurred to me, the Netgear router has a guest network. I could use that instead of this overly complex setup with two separate routers. 
Over the last few months, Steve and I have been hunting down every device that was on the Airport Extreme and moving them over to the Netgear's guest network. Now you'd think this would be an easy task. I mean, both routers have nice tables that clearly show you what devices are on which network. Unfortunately, while, you know, Apple devices say things like Apple TV, many devices don't report exactly who they are. They have helpful information like Texas Instruments is their name. You know, TI makes a lot of chips that are on a lot of devices. Which one are you? Well, one of my solutions after we'd uh, found everything we could think of was just to unplug the Airport Extreme every once in a while and see what failed. That turned into a big mess when Steve's weather station got knocked off online, but that's a whole story in and of itself. Now, you might also remember that I received a pair of Netgear Orbi mesh routers, and I had set them up to extend our network. Turns out that seemed to confuse some of our devices. I'm not entirely sure I did that whole bridge networking thing correctly when I set those up, so I shut them off for now. now. I'm not sure we found all of the devices on the Airport Extreme yet, but for the most part, everything's running on the Netgear now. Since most of the stuff is IoT, I only made a 2.4 gigahertz guest network for those devices. I'm happy to say that now when you look at the available Wi-Fi networks when you're at our house, only three of them are mine instead of seven. I consider that progress. All right, that's all the background. Now to the interesting problem from this week. I might have mentioned a few hundred times that we're doing a massive amount of construction in our house. We have gutted three bathrooms, the entryway, the laundry room, two fireplaces, and then we decided, hey, it's anarchy anyway. Why not have the entire interior of the house repainted? It's been 30 years, so it seemed like time. Well, in order to repaint the inside of the house while you're living it, we've had to unplug and move from room to room as the painters essentially chased us around the house. I told them, I feel like a mash unit. I can pack up and unpack really quickly. Now, I'm not sure any of that contributed to the problems, But suddenly, we had really, really slow internet at our house. I'm talking sub 1 megabits per second on some tests. On a good test, we might see, you know, 20 to 30 megabits per second. But often, it was in single digits when we went to speedtest.net. Again, remember, we're paying for 75.75, and we normally get far in excess of those speeds. Well, the first thing I did was call Frontier, and the tech support guy, Daniel, asked me the usual questions. After quite a while on the phone, I was able to ask him, could you check to see if there's a problem in my area? And he said, oh, yeah, I guess I could check for that. This has happened before. They don't check for that first. Wouldn't you go, let me check your area first. Instead, they ask a bunch of dumb questions. Anyway, he came back and said, yes, there is a problem in my area, but it's only affecting a few hundred homes. Well, that was good enough for me. As soon as I know it's not just my house, I don't really worry that much because I know they're going to get to it faster than if it's just me. It was still sad. We couldn't watch our streaming TV, so we were forced to read books. Good thing our Kindles already had them downloaded. But the next day, Steve noticed something interesting. He ran a test, and he got 100 megabits per second down and up, but he was on wired Ethernet. He unplugged, and the numbers went back into the pooper. He plugged back in, and they went right back up to faster than we were paying for. I was able to replicate his test using my Mac on wired Ethernet. Sure enough, the speeds were great. That meant the problem was internal to our network. I didn't call Daniel back to confess. All right, now it was time to figure this out. My first thought was to restart the router, but for some reason, the web interface to the Netgear, which clearly has a reboot button, was not responding when I pushed it. I decided to just unplug the router, wait 10 seconds, and plug it back in. That didn't fix the problem. After the hard shutdown... I was able to use the reboot button on the web interface, 
but again, that didn't fix anything. I checked for firmware updates, but there were none. By the way, I have a monthly reminder to check for firmware updates. Network Gear is pretty good about sending emails when critical updates are released, but it's good to keep on top of them anyway. I started running some ping times to www.apple.com. By the way, you can't ping apple.com for some reason. It's www.apple.com. Anyway, those ping times were awful. And that's when the, the packets got through it all. Even when I'm doing an audio call to BART way over in Ireland, I see ping times of under 400 milliseconds. But when I was pinging Apple's local servers, you know, in the United States, probably California, I was getting thousands of millisecond ping times and often many completely dropped connections. Then, for grins and giggles, I decided to try pinging my own router while on Wi-Fi. One ping took 10,000 milliseconds inside my house. Well, that just ain't right. It was time to ask for help. I posted in our Slack, in the MacGeekGab Facebook group, and in the MacGeekGab forums where a lot of nerdlets hang out. I posted my question as, does Wi-Fi ever just go bad on a router? I got many helpful answers. Quite a few people answered interestingly with the answer of yes. And someone, I couldn't find this again, who wrote this. They even added that Netgear seems to be susceptible to this more than others. A lot of people suggested it was an interference problem because of congestion on the channel I was using. My neighborhood is kind of low end in the Wi-Fi competition category, though. I got the best information in everything I looked at from someone who goes by data for nothing and bits for free. You gotta love that in the Mac Geek Gab forums. His real name is Bob, but I'm going to call him data for nothing for short. In any case, Data for Nothing also suggested the interference problem, but gave me very specific diagnostic help. By the way, he's still helping me now. He's a lot of fun. Anyway, he suggested I hold down the option key and tap on the Wi-Fi signal in the menu bar on my Mac. When you do that, the network you're using will have expanded information. Amongst other things, you'll see RSSI and noise. I'd seen all of these numbers before, but I didn't have an explanation of how to interpret the numbers. Just as a side note, I looked up RSSI, and according to Wikipedia, it stands for Received Signal Strength Indication. That's a measurement of the power present at a, at a received radio signal. Now, Data for Nothing explained that RSSI is the signal strength, and of course, noise is noise, but he went on to explain. He said, RSSI in the minus 30s is fantastic, and anything approaching the minus 90s is lousy. Noise in the minus 90s is great, and as it drops closer to the minus 30s, means it's really bad for you if this is your channel. Now, oddly enough, while I was having these terrible internet or terrible Wi-Fi problems, I should say, my RSSI signal was minus 34 dBm, and my noise was minus 92 dBm. I was well within the parameters that Data for Nothing had outlined. Later on in Facebook, John F. Brown, uh, John F. Braun suggested I spend some quality time with iStumbler. This used to be a free app that I use from time to time, but now it's $14. I bet if, I, if I'd never gotten it for free, I would have gladly shelled out 14 bucks. But that seems steep after free for so long. And then Data for Nothing suggested I use the built-in tool Wireless Diagnostics. I don't think I ever saw this tool before on my Mac, but it shows you how aware I am. I found a video from 2012 showing how to use it. This app is buried in the top level library slash core services slash applications folder. Rather than digging for it that way, though, you can just find it by holding down the option key and clicking on the Wi-Fi symbol in the menu bar like we did before, 
and right near the top you'll find Open Wireless Diagnostics. For reference on more about this tool, I put the Apple support article in the show notes. Anyway, Wireless Diagnostics is packed with different tools. When you first launch it, it wants to run Wireless Diagnostics. I know that sounds redundant, but that's only one tool amongst many. If you continue, it'll analyze your network, but I didn't learn anything interesting from that. Next, I took a look at the scan window. So if you go up to window and pull down to scan, you get something much more interesting. In the main main window, you can see all of the networks it found. It lists the name, SSID, security level protocol, RSSI and noise, the channel being used, which band it's on in gigahertz, and the width in megahertz, and oddly, the country. I don't know why it has country. I would think it would know I was in the United States. Anyway, I was able to look at this data and see that there are three devices broadcasting on the five gigahertz band, one of which is mine, one is a printer of all things, and one is named Roy. I could see that Roy's signal was a paltry minus 87 dBm, while mine was a solid minus 33 dBm. Again, this supports the idea that my signal strength was just fine. Now, Data for Nothing suggested I open Performance Test from within Wireless Diagnostics. Again, you go to Window to find it, so Window Performance Test. This, uh, let's see, this is uh, probably one of my favorite things in here. It's a continuously updating set of graphs all in one window. The top graph is called Rate, and if you hover over it with your mouse over, over that graph, it explains that it's showing you the transfer rate time in megabits per second. Now, there's more graphs coming to tell you about, but let's pause and talk about this first graph uh, for rate and what it told me. I watched this data being collected and graphed real time, and it was all over the map. My rate was banging from 40 to 120 megabits per second over time. I wasn't sure what it should look like, though. I pinged my friend Pat Dangler and asked her if she could run the test where she was. She was at a business and she got perfectly a perfectly flat line on her graph showing 300 megabits per second. No variation in her graph while mine is moving, you know, 200%. Wait, is that 300%? Yeah, it's 300%. Anyway, I plugged into wired Ethernet and suddenly my graph was a nice non-varying line at 525 megabits per second. That seems reasonable on a gigabit network. So that's wired. It's a flat line, but on Wi-Fi, it's just bouncing all over the place. I mentioned that the performance window has three graphs. The top is the rate, as we've already discussed. The bottom graph has both the RSSI and noise plotted on the same graph. These are graphed in units of dBm. The middle graph is called quality, and if you hover over it, it tells you it's showing you the ratio of the signal level to the noise level over time. But how do you take the ratio of two values measured in dBm? This required a lesson from the electrical engineer I keep on staff for just this kind of situation. First of all, dBm is short for decibel milliwatts. Let's break that down. Decibels, or dB, is a unit that was designed to help you compare numbers that are vastly different from each other. Let's say, for example, you have two numbers you're plotting and one is in millions of dollars while the other value is in hundreds of dollars. You couldn't plot them together and be able to see the second set of data at all. Decibels use a logarithmic scale, which will allow you to see both values on the same graph. Now, logarithmic values are a funny thing. Normally, you divide two numbers to get the ratio. But to calculate the ratio of two logarithmic values, you actually subtract their values, and then their units, in our example milliwatts, will cancel out. So 10 dBm divided by 2 dBm is actually 8 dB. Kind of weird. 
Anyway, in our problem with signal strength, we're trying to measure the power levels of the signal and noise. That means we want to compare it to a fixed reference, in this case, one milliwatt or one one thousandth of a watt. That now gives us decibel, milliwatts, or dBm. And if we want the signal to noise ratio, we subtract the two values and discard the units. In our example, our signal was minus 30 dBm and noise was minus 90 dBm, so we would have a signal to noise ratio of 60 dB. Remember, dB isn't part of the units, the watts were the units, so it's still dB. Apple plots this on a graph called quality, and that's the middle graph on the performance window. All right, now, after that little lesson in logarithms, let's get back to trying to figure out what's making my rate be so wonky on Wi-Fi. Data for Nothing suggested it was time to bring in one of my many spare routers. He was trying to eliminate the possibility that there was some new interference happening in our house. If the Airport Extreme also gave us poor performance on Wi-Fi, then that would eliminate the possibility that something had gone wrong with the Netgear. I should mention that by this time in our story, our speeds on Wi-Fi were just fine. That didn't keep us from running the experiments to see if we could figure out whether something odd was going on with the Netgear router. So, I dusted off the Airport Extreme, and by the way, in my house, when I say dust, I mean like get a mop out to get all the dust off. Anyway, I reset it to factory settings, and I set it up in bridge mode attached to the Netgear. This time, I'm sure I did it right on the whole bridge mode thing. Data for Nothing had suggested I run these tests on two different Macs at the same time. So I brought my MacBook Pro into Steve's den where his iMac lives so we could look at the graphs concurrently. At first, my MacBook Pro got this beautiful flatline graph while Steve's was bouncing all around with those curious square waves we talked about earlier. I moved my MacBook Pro from the bed over the de- to the desk right next to his iMac, and then I got the bouncing up and down speeds too. Now, the theory that if the wonky behavior went away when we used the Airport Extreme, then we could definitely say that the Netgear's Wi-Fi was failing and I could go shopping for a new router. But now that the Airport Extreme exhibited the exact same behavior, I don't have an excuse to buy a new Shiny. Instead, we have to look at interference. Fine. I also ran some tests changing the channel of the Netgear, but I managed to pretty much lose the signal entirely when I did that. I then started shutting off devices in the cabinet near the Netgear. One at a time, I shut off the Mac Mini, then the Drobo 5N2, then the Drobo 5N, then the monitor, and finally the printer. Nothing changed the performance graph. So this is everything around the uh, Netgear router. Then I thought, okay, maybe it's something in my studio where I'm working. So I unplugged power to my dock, which shut everything off. I mean, all USB 3 devices, everything. I shut off my microphone, shut off my cameras, got rid of, oops, got rid of everything. I even shut down Steve's iMac in his den, and I pulled power on his dock. Nothing fixed that problem. Now, I bet you were thinking this story had an end. That I would, you know, delightfully tie it up in a bow and be able to tell you the answer. Well, sorry to disappoint. This is a story that does not yet have an ending. I hope that you've learned a bit about fault isolation and about the cool performance testing you can do with the built-in wireless diagnostics app on your Mac. You know what? Maybe there's nothing wrong. Maybe it was some, you know, neutrino attack and the square waves are normal for my house. Maybe my contractors use paint with little tiny wire mesh embedded in it. Maybe, maybe Steve and my teaching assistant from our physics lab in college is hiding in my house. We used to call him the astronaut. Anyway, I suggest that maybe the astronaut is here because once we were doing an experiment with traveling wave tubes, also known as TWTs, 
We had an oscilloscope set up measuring the wave patterns coming through them. We had this very weird problem. We just barely get this beautiful sinusoid on the oscilloscope, and suddenly the display would go completely wonky. We could not figure out what it was. We worked on it for a long time. Finally, we noticed that our teaching assistant, the astronaut, who, by the way, was frequently stoned, was sticking the metal tip of a yardstick into the other end of the TWT on the other side of the room. He thought it was hilarious. So, yeah, we may never know the end of the answer to this one, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, after that incredibly unsatisfying end of the story, I'm afraid that's going to wind us up for this week. Do not forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. You can also follow me on Twitter if you like, at Podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. Want to become a patron like Clan did this week? Go to podfeet.com slash Patreon. Want to join our Facebook group? Podfeet.com slash Facebook. Hey, Facebook? Come on over to podfeet.com slash Slack. A lot of people have come over from uh, Facebook, I got to tell you. And if you want to join in uh, the live chat, you can always come to podfeet.com slash chat. Like we will be in the show at 7 a.m. on Tuesday, 7 a.m. Pacific time, that is. If you want to use the Amazon affiliate links, go to podfeet.com slash Amazon. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.